All right. As we get started, Acts 21, just by way of a minimal introduction and then a more maximal introduction, if you can follow all that, we are in the book of Acts. And I just want to mention that again. We've been studying and calling our study, Discovering the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. And I think we'll discover some interesting things about being spirit-led today. We'll talk about those as we go through this study today. But it is, again, the book of Acts. It's not the book of thoughts, the book of meditations, the book of wishes, or even the book of good intentions. All those things are fine, but it is the book of Acts. And what we find in the pages are people motivated by, driven by the Spirit of God that do things that are uncommon or supernaturally natural. And I highlight that because it really seems like the last number of weeks has really been discovering the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. But what we have to be reminded is that Paul was quite content to live as a Pharisee in Jerusalem until the Lord got a hold of his life and the Lord changed everything. By the time Paul is done, has finished his course, as he said to Timothy, he will have traveled 10,000 miles for the Lord during his missionary journeys and then being taken to Rome. 10,000 miles untold expenses for those miles traveled and for those souls won. And Paul would even say to the church in Corinth, I would gladly spend and be spent for your souls. So when we talk about the book of Acts, it is an action book. It is action packed. And what we see behind the apostle Paul is the spirit of God. Paul would even say, it's the love of Christ that compels me. Why do you do what you do, Paul? Why do you travel 10,000 miles? Why do you give up the things that you give up? Why did you turn away from your good life in Jerusalem as a Jew? Respected by people, scholarly, Pharisee, power. Oh, why would you turn away from that? He would say, the love of Christ compels me. What Christ has done for me, how can I keep it to myself? And I bring this up because today is July 2nd. And really, today is truly the birth date of our nation. July 4th has to do with some other events that took place. But really, today is the birth date of our nation. This article says today is July 2nd, the real birthday of the United States of America. The Continental Congress voted for independence on July 2nd, 1776. One member, future U.S. President John Adams, even then wrote that someday America would celebrate each July 2nd as a great anniversary festival with pomp and parade. Of course, he was wrong. July 4th is celebrated instead because that is when the Continental Congress separately passed a document that eloquently explained its grievances and hopes to the world the Declaration of Independence. Now, I printed out, because this is really meaningful, I printed out just for our reminder, a brief, just brief portion of the Declaration, and then I'm going to read to you the last sentence of the Declaration of Independence. And I'm going to read this to you because many kids, many of us, haven't ever read it or haven't ever thought about it in this day of separation of church and state. Let's read it. Because when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, try selling separation of church and state to our founding fathers, and of which nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. The final line of the Declaration of Independence is the affirmation of the 56 signers of what they just did. You see, if they lost the war, they would have all been hanged for high treason. It was very risky. The last line says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. What did it end up costing them? Let's start with this. This is an article that outlines some of these things. Rather, they all knew that uh, had they committed high treason against Great Britain and their sovereign King George III by signing their name to a document and renounced their allegiance to the mother countries. And then they quote in this article, this last line of the declaration, nine signers paid the ultimate sacrifice, their lives, for the cause of independence. 17, almost one in three, lost every penny they had and every piece of property they owned. Yet not a single one reneged on their pledge to stand for the support of this declaration. Not a single one went back and said, I I regret having signed that. Not one of them. This is the fabric of the founding of our nation. This kind of freedom sought through and gained through the freedom to give up freedom for the sake of freedom. Try saying that 10 times fast. Just a couple of examples here for you. How about New York? William Floyd of New York, he and his family escaped the British invasion of Long Island to Connecticut, but left behind their home and his entire income. The home was a charred ruin when they returned, penniless a full seven years later. He went on to become a U.S. senator and congressman from New York. Philip Livingston, also from New York, one of the wealthiest men in America in 1776. He lost every shilling he had as a result of signing the Declaration. His family was driven from their house by the British and his estate plundered. Livingston died impoverished two years later, while still serving in the Continental Congress. Robert Morris from Pennsylvania earned a massive fortune as a banker and commercial magnate and gave it all away to finance the revolution. The blockade runners that brought provisions from Europe to the colonies were entirely paid for and provisioned by Morris. He also loaned the then enormous sum of $10,000 to the Continental Congress when it was on the verge of bankruptcy in 1776. Unlike the global bankers of today, Morris didn't set any preconditions on a loan that literally kept the nation afloat. Also, unlike today's CEOs, he never got his money back. He died impoverished in 1806, but not before becoming the nation's first effective Secretary of the Treasury. What a great guy to be, Secretary of the Treasury, right? said, I'll give it all away. Oh, there's a Virginia guy in here somewhere. Thomas Nelson of Virginia lived in Yorktown, which of course saw the final showdown of the Revolutionary War as American guns shelled the British defenses and anguished Nelson now a general in the Continental Army, saw that they were sparing his house, which was General Cornwallis' headquarters. As the story goes, Nelson personally turned a cannon toward his own home and blew it up to show that he was no less willing to sacrifice than his fellow Virginians. He loaned over $2 million to the Continental Congress, none of which was repaid, and died impoverished. That's what we think about. That's what we celebrate. That's what our whole nation was founded on because we live in this time of a demanding of our rights, our rights, and we celebrate our freedoms. I remember our kids years ago going to youth group at a local church and the discussion 
that night at youth group had been about freedom in Christ. And so they were all excited when they got in the car. Oh, dad, we just learned about, we're free in Christ. We're free in Christ. And I said, okay, free from what? They said, we don't know. But they were excited about being free in Christ. They didn't know what that freedom meant. They didn't know what that meant for them. And it just struck me as being so interesting that they really didn't know. So I printed out a few verses about freedom. Trust me, all of this does relate to Acts chapter 21, I promise you. You may not see it, but trust me, it does. Somehow in my mind, it relates. Bible verses about freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Whom the Son sets free, John chapter 8. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Galatians 5.13. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1. Now, let's clarify some of those verses about freedom. Let's bring some other verses alongside of those. Through love, serve one another. Serving is a word that has to do with slavery. Through love, serve one another. Though I am free from all men, 1 Corinthians 9, I make myself a slave to all. Galatians 5.13, the conclusion of the previous verse I read, do not use your liberty to indulge the flesh, only humbly serve one another through love. 1 Corinthians 8, one of my favorites, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Therefore, this is down to verse 13, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So I think when our founding fathers set out to sign and write that Declaration of Independence, there was an underlying fabric, an underlying understanding that the only way it works is when we are so free that we're free to give up our freedoms for the sake of others, for the sake of our brother or sister. And all of that brings us back to the Apostle Paul in Acts 21 and the freedoms he gave up in following Christ. The freedoms he said goodbye to. This is 1 Corinthians 8, 9, are fantastic chapters that have to do with this very thing. He could have freely stayed in Antioch and enjoyed just being part of the church there and worship and raise hands and celebrate and have the agape meals and all that. But he was willing to walk away from that freedom in order to take the gospel all the way to Europe. It eventually ended up there in England and from England it have ended up in the lives of many of our founding fathers and it ended up here. I wonder if we owe a greater debt to the Apostle Paul for the freedom we enjoy based on Christ. Some of those freedoms, some of those that nature's God Paul outlines in Romans chapter 1, a book he'd written by this point in Acts 21. So as we go through Acts 21, I just want to bring this to the church. You know, we all say, oh, we wish the church was more like the early church. Wouldn't it be great if the church was like the early church? And I say, amen, it would be. But the early church had its shares of sufferings. And watch what the Spirit of God is doing in the Apostle Paul's life. Pastor, please tell us how this relates. Okay, chapter 21, verse 1. Now it came to pass that when he had departed from them, who's them? Them was the elders of Ephesus that he was just having that pastor's meeting in Miletus with. He had met with the elders of Ephesus. He had explained to them that he was being called to go to Jerusalem. He was hustling to get there by the time of the Pentecost. 
He told them that the spirit of God was telling that in every city, he was going to face some difficulties. Chains and tribulations await me. But he said, none of these things move me. Nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race, that 10,000 miles race that God called him to, that I may finish it with joy, the ministry God called me to. That was what he had shared with these pastors at this previous meeting. So when he had departed from them after that emotional departure, literally the word for departed here in chapter 21 is to be torn away. After we had torn ourselves away from each other, it wasn't easy. And we set sail. We ran a straight course and we came to Kaz, the following day to Rhodes and from there to Patera. So they're basically puddle jumping along the coast of ancient Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. They're puddle jumping on this boat, you know, 40 miles here, 20 miles there, following their way down as they're heading back to Jerusalem. And finding verse two, a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, that's all the way toward the Israeli coast, north of the Israeli coast, Lebanon, actually. Finding a ship sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. So it seems that what happened is they were taking these small shuttle boats along the coast, island hopping and port hopping, and then to make that long 400-mile journey, which would have taken about five days in that time, they needed to hop on a cargo ship that was more suited for the long journey. So they hop on a cargo ship, and the travel wasn't easy. You think you got it hard today. No global entry program, no you know, pre-approved flight. Travel was tough for them. So 400 miles on this cargo ship, and they make it back to where Tyre is, again in Liberia. I guess you could probably say they were pretty tired by that point. I know you can groan. That was bad. For there they unloaded the cargo. Got to keep it light. Got to keep it light. Verse four. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So evidently looks at his watch. The trip is progressing well. He's on track to be in Jerusalem for Pentecost. So we don't know much about these uh, disciples that are in Tyre. We don't know who started that church. The church could have been planted after the persecution in Jerusalem where the disciples were scattered. But anyway, there's this group of disciples there. And it seems that when Paul lands there, they actually have to seek out, okay, where's the church? Where are the disciples here in this area? I want to fellowship with them. And I know that feeling when I travel. I've shared this before. I love to seek out where's the local church. I want to be in fellowship. I'm traveling for a week. I'm going to be there on a Wednesday or a Sunday. I want to find other believers to hang out with. I want to find other spirit-filled people to just spend some time with, study the word with, be in fellowship. So that's what Paul does on his trip, but he's got his entourage with him. So verse four, finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So he's got a week-long layover there. Now watch what happens. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. And when we had come, verse five, to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. So you see a lot of hellos and goodbyes in the book of Acts. And here again, he's in Tyre. They spend a week together. You know, when you're filled with the spirit, it doesn't take a whole long time to build some intimate relationships. The chances are likely that maybe Paul had never met most of these people before. And here we find whole families 
going to the beach and kneeling to pray with Paul to say goodbye to him. Now, I don't know if you've ever traveled, done some mission trips, but you go and you work with some believers overseas. I know when we went to Nepal last year, many of you met Bond and Heather who were just here in the church. We were only with them for 10 days. I'd never met them before in my life. And in 10 days, God so knit our hearts together by serving together, by traveling together, by eating together, by sharing together. It was like we'd known each other a lifetime. Have you ever had that experience? You meet other believers, you meet them for a day or two days, even when Sammy was here. I'd met Sammy before, but never spent any time with him. And you spend a night together, you spend a day together, and all of a sudden, God knits your hearts together. There's this beautiful, spirit-filled friendship that develops. And so when Paul says goodbye to these people in Tyre, it's emotional again. And the whole family goes down to the beach. Come on, kids, get in a car. We're going to the airport to say goodbye to Paul. And as he gets on the plane, the Spirit had already said, what did the Spirit say? Through them? Told Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? Because Paul says, the Spirit directing me that I'm bound in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And so we see this seeming discrepancy that happens. And we'll come back to that because this says a lot about how we discern the will of God in our lives. Because sometimes for us, discerning the will of God means I'm going to do what is least costly. I'm going to do what is least painful. But that's not the biblical way to discern the will of God. Jesus in the garden prays with great drops of blood and says, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. The church needs more of that. The American church is the church of I want it easy and I want it fast. And I'm not preaching to you guys. I'm preaching to this pastor. I challenge myself. So I'm going to leave that hanging there. They told Paul through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. We're going to see this happen again. So just hang out there. We'll we'll think about that. We'll come back to it. Verse 7. And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemaeus. It's the modern city of Akko, about I think 30 miles north of Haifa in Israel. We came to Ptolemaeus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. And the next day, we who were Paul's companions, and that Luke includes himself, departed and came to Caesarea, at Caesarea Maritime or Caesarea Maritima. We go there when we go on our Israel trips. That's like our first stop. We're exhausted. We're jet lagged. We hop on the bus and we head out of the airport. We head north from Tel Aviv. And usually the first stop, we start touring right away. Because, man, you you may not get to Israel more than once in your life if you have that chance. So we start touring right away. First place we go, Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea Maritima. That's where Paul and his companions went. Next day, we who were Paul's companions departed, came to Caesarea, entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Do you remember Philip the evangelist? Well, you might know him better as Philip the deacon, the deacon, Acts chapter six. Remember there was this discrepancy between the, the Greek speaking widows and the Hebrew speaking widows and everything was, people were complaining because we're getting gypped and we're not getting our right proportion of food. And so the disciples say, hey, we gotta be studying and praying. Why don't we appoint seven men filled with the Holy Spirit, have good reputations and we'll have them serve, we'll have them take care of these things. And these were, some say, the first deacons. Well, Stephen was one of them, right? And Philip was one of them. Because we don't want to get you confused with Philip, one of the apostles. This is a different Philip. This is Philip, interestingly, calls him Philip the evangelist. Well, wait a second, is he a deacon or is he an evangelist? Well, yes, 
you know, you can be more than one thing when you're a Christian. Like you can have more than one skill set or gift. And so Philip, we see what happens with him is that he goes on to minister in Samaria, multitudes get saved, and he goes on to minister then to that one man, that Ethiopian eunuch, and he baptizes him there on this desert road. And then he goes on to, he disappears, and he ends up in this place in Caesarea. And now here comes Paul to stay with him. Now, what's interesting about that is Paul was there when Stephen was being stoned to death. You remember that whole stoning of Stephen? Stephen preaches this sermon. The Jews really don't like what he said. They stone him to death. And Paul was there consenting to this whole process that went out and took place. And then Stephen gets buried by some of the devout men. I wonder if Philip was a pallbearer at Stephen's funeral. It could be. We don't know for sure. But certainly there was relationships there. Philip knew Stephen. They worked together. And he knew Paul was there too. Now, so what kind of reconciliation has to happen when the guy that killed your best friend then gets saved, becomes this awesome evangelist? You know, sometimes you look at people get saved and you go, how do I know it's real? How do I know that that salvation experience is real? I love that about Paul because he runs his entire race. Never does he backslide. Never does he walk away. His conversion is real and genuine. He carries it through to the end. Because sometimes people get saved, it's an emotional thing, they answer a call, you know, there's an invitation at church and they go forward and then you really don't see any fruit in their life. And sometimes we're just waiting, right? You're just waiting. There's some early fruit, but you're going, I'm not sure this is going to last. I've been there. I've said that. Ah, we just got to wait and see. I'm not sure this is going to last. And then a lot of times, you know what? It doesn't. But Philip now, Philip invites him to stay in his house. What healing, what reconciliation must have happened, what understanding, what forgiveness welcomes him in. Now, verse 9, this man, Philip, had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, so Paul was not there just overnight or a couple days, he was many days with Philip and his family and these young girls, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So put a pause marker there with Agabus. We'll come back to him in a second. Just think about Philip and these four virgin daughters. So Philip has four girls. He's married, he's moved to Caesarea, he's settled down there, he's uh, in a different phase of ministry, he's raising a family, and all of his girls, all four of his girls, solid in the Lord. Bible says they were all prophetesses, they all prophesied. Now, how old were these girls? We know there were young, unmarried girls. Were they teenagers? I mean, think about it. These young girls, they're in the youth group at the church. They're 15, they're 14, they're 13, they're 17. And these girls are speaking powerfully the word of God. You see, a lot of times, not only do we set very low standards or very low expectations for youth, but the youth set low expectations for themselves. They think nothing's really expected of us spiritually except to show up, play some games, have dinner, and endure a Bible study, if we must. My youth group experience was spaghetti and girls. I'll get admitted. That's why I went to youth group. We ate spaghetti and chased girls. That's what I did. But they were all like, these girls, they they, they didn't want anything to do with me. These were spiritual girls prophesying in the Lord. Oh, you know, you can't help but wonder, like, what influence having Philip as a dad had in their family and Philip being a man of the word. Again, he could have done anything with his life, but Philip just concerned with people's souls and how that affects your family, how that affects the way your kids think, how that affects the things that they think are important in life. 
So these virgin daughters, notice also they're women, they're girls. You know, sometimes people say, well, the Bible is written by chauvinists. Wait a second. Have you read the Bible? Anybody that has said that has never read the Bible. I will guarantee you. Because we have highlights on women like Lydia, on Mary, on Mary Magdalene. I mean, women are highlighted and lifted up and elevated in the word of God above culture in that day and age. And women had an important place in the spiritual ministry of the church. A lot of people say, well, you know, uh, what is the role of women in ministry? If ministry just means service, which it does, then women have a tremendous role in ministry. Absolutely. The church, I think, would crumble. You know what I'm saying. Jesus is never going to let the church crumble, but thank God he continues to propel and compel women in the service of the Lord. The ladies just have his passion and desire for the things of God. And so here you have women speaking forth the word of God. I love that. So then we have this Agabus, this guy that comes from Judea. We've seen him before earlier in the book of Acts. Now he shows up again, and he's got this prophecy for the apostle Paul. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, so he does it on himself, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, speaking for God, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus, known to be a prophet among the early church, he has a reputation. You know, a lot of people want to say, well, the Spirit of God told me. Sometimes you hear that and you go, I'm not so sure that's from the Spirit. Agabus has a reputation. Agabus, he does like an Old Testament thing. He takes the belt. It's like a real living illustration, you know, and he binds himself. But he doesn't offer any interpretation. He just says, here's the vision. Here's the prophecy. Whoever owns this belt, he just took it from Paul. Like, so it's not like he doesn't know who owns the belt. But this is Old Testament kind of prophetic language. Whoever owns this belt, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind him and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He doesn't offer any commentary. He doesn't say, well, I think you shouldn't go or anything like that. He just says, this is what's going to happen. And there's a lot of parallels, I think, as you look back to the life of Jesus, aren't there? Jesus was determined to go where? He's determined to go to Jerusalem. He tells this to his disciples. Matter of fact, I'll read it to you from Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So there's this great parallel between what God is calling Paul to and what God called Jesus to. When you become a follower of Jesus, that sets up a great parallel in your life too. How do you follow someone without going where they went? Now, does that mean you have to go to Jerusalem? No, it doesn't mean you have to go physically to Jerusalem. For Paul, it did. It's still the minimum requirement. The minimum, listen, gang, the church needs to hear this, not just this church, the church. The minimum requirement for discipleship is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. That's like, well, you know, if if you're like going to be a pastor, that's the thing. Or if you want to go to seminary, that's what you do. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, it involves laying down of your life and your rights and your desires and your goals and your pride and your whatever else, all that goes aside. That's what Paul said when he got saved, right? Lord, what do you want me to do? 
When's the last time you said, you're so busy maybe sometimes telling the Lord what you want him to do for you. When's the last time you said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? So this is what Jesus tells them. I'm going to be killed and raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Peter says, Jesus, we got this all backwards. You know, no way, you don't have to suffer. You shouldn't have to go there. And he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And that's so often like us, isn't it? You see, the challenge with sometimes a calling in life and the Spirit's role and the Spirit's movement in our life is we intermix our own desires, our own feelings. And sometimes it's hard to hear really what God is doing because there's fear, worry. Maybe I'm getting it wrong with the Spirit of God. We have this understanding that the Spirit of God calls me to be happy. Have you read that in your Bible? God wants me to be happy. Show me the verse. God wants you to be holy. We can do that. God wants you to be obedient. We can go there. God wants you to have joy. Absolutely. That's the freaky thing about these disciples, these 20-somethings that changed the world. They were persecuted, they were made poor, and they were filled with joy. It's fantastic. We're going to come back to some of these thoughts as we keep going here. He shares this prophecy, and now it's out there. You know, boom, it's been put out there. Now, what's the response? Now, we've got to make a decision. The Spirit of God is saying, whoever's belt this is going to be bound and handed over to the Gentiles, just as in the life of Jesus, you know handed over to the Romans. Now, when we heard these things, we, Luke, and all the entourage, everybody heard this prophecy. And everybody's looking at Paul like, all right, what do we do with this? Both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. They are begging Paul not to go. These are his close friends. This is a prophecy that says, hey, there's trouble awaiting Years ago, I uh, went to the East Coast Pastors Conference. And uh, at the conference, there was a guest speaker, a man who was uh, named Frank Drown, D-R-O-W-N. And this guy was along the same timeline as Jim Elliott and that crew who were sharing the gospel with the Indians, the native uh, Indians of Ecuador. And he wrote a book about his experience, about his missionary experience, and came to share about his book. But the thing I wanted to talk to you guys about, and this part of that story that really impacted me, was when he knew he was called to go to Ecuador, he had to say goodbye to his family, his dad and his mom. And his dad was older, and he said he knew that he would never see his dad again. And he talked about embracing on the driveway before he got into his car to drive to the airport, and just that tearful, sad departure as he went to follow God's call in his life and had to say goodbye to his dad. And then later on, a couple of years later, he did get the call. He got the information that his dad had died, wasn't able to go for the funeral, wasn't able to be there at that time. But he knew that. And so when he left, when he walked out that driveway, there were a lot of tears shed because he said, I knew I was never going to see my dad again. I say that to kind of get you in this mindset of, you understand what they're saying to Paul. They love him. I mean, imagine your own kids going, dad, I'm called to go on the mission field. I'm going to share the gospel with ISIS in Afghanistan. You'd be like, I'm not sure that's God. I know it's not your mother, but I'm not sure that's God. Right? Wouldn't we question that? But what do we make that decision based on? Watch what Paul says. He says, now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place 
pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. It would be so easy to say, you know, I hear you. I hear you. Okay, I won't go. I won't go. He's not going to die in Jerusalem, by the way. He's going to have some trouble, but he's not going to die there. It'd be so much easier. I see, you know, everybody's saying it. I must be hearing wrong from God. Watch his response. Verse 13. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He says, come on, guys, knock it off. You are tugging on my heartstrings. This is really, you're you're not making this easier. Because he knew that he knew that he knew that God was calling him to go to Jerusalem. And ultimately, he felt God calling him to Rome. And he had worked out. You couldn't scare him by threatening him with, Paul, you're going to die there. He said, okay, that's good news. For Paul, that was good news. He'd already worked these things out in his mind. He already spent the time in his time of meditation. He'd already seen when he was dragged, you know, stoned and left for dead. He'd already had a vision of the third heaven. He had a vision of, of a place where words, it would be unlawful even to try to describe it with words. And then he came to and said, man, I want to go back there. You ever have that dream and you wake up, you're like, man, I want to get back into that dream. That was a good dream. And he'd already worked this out in his quiet time. He'd already worked this out in his journaling time of, Lord, prepare me to die. I want to be prepared for those things in my life. I want to have this full confidence of heaven and the resurrected body and eternal life. And so he'd already done that work. So when it came time for this thing, he couldn't be moved by appeals to human things, appeals to earthly things. But here's the challenge. When we talk to someone about God's will, now here's what I want to get a little bit practical with you guys. A number of months ago when we started in the book of Acts, I'd shared, you know, we'd been spending some time in Italy. You know, Helga and I have been traveling there back and forth, and I talked about my heart, you know, for church planting in Italy. And I began to get a lot of feedback like, whoa, Steve, you're not going to Italy, are you? You're in a way in a second. You're not, you're not going to Italy, are you? And I'm like, well, we don't have current plans to do so. I have plans to send other people there. But, but let me ask you, church, what if we were? Again, this is going to blow up the whole thing again. I apologize. All the emails are going to start back over again. Steve said second service is going to hear it. First service, you're going to see Steve's going to Italy. Steve's going to Italy. Not going to Italy. Not going, unless the Lord calls me. And if then, you should support me, shouldn't you? And I, you. I mean, this is the thing. Do you see the temptation to superimpose our needs, our desires, our hopes over top of and instead of God's will? You want to see a church that's on fire? You want to see a church that actually makes a difference? It's the church that puts God's will above their own desires and needs. Doesn't matter what I need. Doesn't matter what I want. The question is, Steve, is God calling you? to go to Italy? Or is God calling you to do this? But it's going to be hard. I'm not sure the Spirit would call me to do something hard. Oh, yes, he would. He did it in the lives of our founding fathers, didn't he? And aren't we thankful for it? The greatest freedom you can ever enjoy in your life is the freedom to give up your freedom for a greater cause. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, and I'll read this to you again, I quoted it earlier, but this has been a passage that has impacted my life tremendously. He talks about all the freedoms he has as being a a pastor, being an apostle, 
And he says, for though I am free from all men, I've made myself. See, this isn't imposed on you. This is what happens when you serve the Lord. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. He was a servant to the disciples in Iconium, in Derby, in Lystra, in Thessalonica, in Ephesus, and in Jerusalem, and wherever he was a slave to all men. He had a debt to all men to serve them. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law, not being without law toward God, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker of it with you. And he goes on to give this wonderful illustration about being an athlete. And as an athlete, he says, listen, athletes, don't they give up a lot of freedom? Any athletes in here? Anybody striving to run a marathon or participate in a tough mutter race or some other survival race or something? We do all this stuff. And there's sacrifice involved, isn't there? There's, I heard about some of these races where there's like electrified wires and you got to crawl under this electrified wires and through the mud and people are signing up in droves to participate in these things. And you got to pay money to do it. you got to pay somebody money to electrify wire and fill up water and mud so you can crawl under it and get the t-shirt to say, I did it. I love that kind of stuff. I'm a competitor at heart. I love that kind of stuff. And then you talk about Olympic athletes and what they give up. I mean, they get up at four in the morning to start eating, and then they have their first practice in the morning. And then they got another meal and more practice. And then they got classroom time. Then they got to go stretching and they do yoga and they got massages. And then there's more time and more time and more money. And to be an Olympic athlete costs you millions of dollars. And because you're amateur and, you know, so unless you get all kinds of promotions and things, it's a lot of out of money expenses. And, and you do it for what, Paul says? For a gold medal. The streets in heaven are paved with it for a gold medal. Paul says, we do it. We do it for an imperishable crown. Look at what people are willing to sacrifice for glory for men on earth. Shouldn't that mean that as Christians, what we should be willing to sacrifice for the glory of God and the salvation of mankind and the eternal reward we get for that, shouldn't that be infinitely more? And so when Paul is confronted with this choice, he says, guys, quit pulling my heartstrings. What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? Literally, pounding my heart. It was the word that was used to describe in that day before washing machines. You know, when you wash your clothes, you have to agitate the clothes, right? Well, without the agitation part of the washing machine, they would pound on the clothes with rocks to get the dirt out. Go figure that one out. I don't understand it. I'm just telling you what it means. They would pound on the clothes with rocks. (laughs) I don't think there was goodwill then because the clothes would never make it beating on them with rocks. What do you mean by pounding on my heart? with rocks. Be careful when someone's talking to you about what God is calling them to do. Be careful that you might talk them out of God's will for their life because of your fears or your needs. And we understand, we love people. I mean, I love my kids dearly, but they are God's kids. And if my kids have a calling to do something, I'm going to say, son, daughter, make sure you pray. Make sure you know you're hearing from the Lord on this. And if you are, then let's do it. And that's what Paul says. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done.